Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. And I'm Michael McMullen. I'm not sure we even got the start of that. I'm not sure we were recording. I'll just repeat it. I'm Dave Hendon, you're Michael McMullen, and this is the Snooker Scene Podcast. What a great start to to the Mm. show. Can only get better. Well, let's hope so. Well, one thing that you can look forward to later on at the end of our chat, I'll be speaking to Wayne Griffiths, that's Terry's son, about their new snooker handicap project, Snooker Quotient. So that'll be at the end of our little bit. Now, uh, the, the facts are these, OK? We've only had one email all week, which leads me to, to, to one conclusion. The show's in crisis. We're going to we're gonna have to inject something into it because clearly people are saying, look, you boasted last week about being big in Finland. Well, you know, <laughs> where's all the interest this week? I know what it was. I made fun of Vanilla Rice, and there's clearly been a backlash. So I, there's there's I t- that. And yeah. also, you know, the Finns have been playing in the Euros, their first yeah. ever tournament. So they've got other things to be doing. We can understand that. They can have the summer, you know. Well, but the one email we did get is absolutely superb because it comes from Matt Tresco, and this is what he says. He says, greetings from sunny Manchester. Because I'm badly in need of a hobby, I've been spending time working on a Masters Almanac, something in a similar vein to Chris Downer's Crucible Almanac. It's still a work in progress, but it's reached a point where I think it contains enough information to be of interest to some of your listeners. It has full match and frame scores, played one, lost stats, century breaks, most frequent head-to-head matchups, and a host of miscellaneous facts and tidbits that are probably best forgotten. I've attached a copy. If your listeners are interested, I've set up a blog spot so I can download, so you can, I can host a download link. So this is the, uh, the address to access it. I did put it on Twitter earlier on, and a lot of people have already looked at it. But the address is mastersalmanac.blogspot.com. That's mastersalmanac.blogspot.com. I'll start again. I told you it was no good this, this, this week. Okay, mastersalmanac.blogspot.com. Uh, and just direct people to your Twitter page. They'll see it there. Well, yeah. I notice he says, Matt Tresco, this is, he says, I think it contains enough information to be of interest. Well, it's 113 pages, and yeah. I can tell you it is absolutely extraordinary. It's a fantastic piece of work, very much in the vein of Chris Downer's Crucible Almanac. Um, all the scores are there, you know, all the breaks are there. There is actually, um, and Matt points out, there's a sort of page of om- omissions. There's a few things he's still after. Um, so if you go on there, his email address is on there. If you've got any of the, the gaps that can be filled, uh, he would like to do that. But, uh, well, you've looked at it. What, what do you think? Mm. Well, first of all, I've really got to get this out of the way. So Matt Tresco has sent the only email, but we do appreciate that he sent it in anyway, because it's a case of Tresco, every little helps. Wow. Yeah, that's going to go down well in Finland, isn't it? <laughs> anyway, now that we've got that silliness out of the way, I'm going to make an enormous statement. And this podcast has been home to many of those over the years. This could be the biggest. I reckon he's out Chris Downer to Chris Downer. With this. Big. big talk. Yeah, big, massive talk. I mean, so many favourites here. One of them is the fact that there was a quarterfinal in 1976, was it, between Ray Reardon, who would have been world champion at the time, and John Pullman, who was a former world champion, in which the highest break was 22. Yes. I well, mean, I, was th- I was thinking about that. Like, what, what was, I mean, was that brown to black? Was it? Probably. Did someone get in? Because when you think about it, like, and this is, what, a best of nine frame, match best of seven, best of nine, whatever it was. Like, 
22 like early in a frame. That's basically seven or eight pots. So are we mm. saying only once in the match did someone manage to string together? They are. Two, two multi-world champions, by the way. I mean, yeah. what, what, what was it? Clive, Clive had a nice phrase for it, mm. if I could just find it. Uh, for connoisseurs of the ghastly. That's it, yeah. That was in Snooker scene, yeah. I mean, it, sound, yeah. it does sound awful. But, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, um, but some of the other things as well. I mean, this was news to me. I don't know if you, you knew this. I knew this, this, this kind of carry-on used to go on back in the 1940s or 50s or whatever. But apparently, up to, I think he said 1984... They used to play the dead frames. I mean, that's just beyond belief. Yeah. Well, basically, it's worth saying that, of course, the Masters in those days, it was an independent promotion, so it wasn't a WPBC event, mm. so they could basically do what they wanted. And, yeah, it says here, if sessions finished early, it was common practice to fill out the time playing the dead frames, although these did not count towards the final scores. And, of course, neither the high break. So, for example, 1981, Doug Mountjoy beat Eddie Charlton 5-0, he made a break of 137, but the high break was made in the tournament by Terry Griffiths. 136. It looks like Barry Hearn put play to this. He said, it says mm. here, in 1984, Barry Hearn announced the Matrium players would no longer play out the dead frames. So Davis beat Mio 5 0. They didn't play the dead frames. The practice fell out of fashion. Uh, yeah, I mean, it doesn't bear thinking about that really now, does it? I mean, it, talk about anti climax as well for, yeah. the, for the audience because it means nothing. And what if someone had hit a one four seven in one of the dead frames? Like, <laughs> would that have counted towards the official records? It seems amazing. But there's so much gold in in this in this almanac. I mean, the fact that apparently once during the tournament there was a pro celebrity match. Mm. I can't remember who the pros were, but the celebrities were uh, Peter Alice and Eric Sykes. Who always seems to pop up in these things, by the way. And uh, I mean, what else can you point to? Also, I was fascinated to see there have been four matches that have gone to a respot in the final frame. Yeah, you consider, I think there's only ever been one at the Crucible. It seems r- remarkable that there have been uh, been four there. So um, it's it's just, it's it's absolutely fantastic. And now, of course, Dave, as you would put it, all we need is a UK Championship uh, version, and then we'll have the Triple Crown of Almanacs. Well, that that would be an extraordinary trilogy, wouldn't it? Because mm. And it would be a big tome if you actually printed it all out. That would be, because the, the Crucible one is over 300 pages. This is over 100. That The UK, mm. I think, would sit somewhere in the middle, probably about 200. Mm. So that would be a lot of stuff to pull through. Bringing it on, I say. Some great stuff in here, actually. I mean, the, the, my, my favourite, uh, keep uh, scrolling through, my favourite one is just called Fowlathon. It's just one paragraph. It says, it says, Mark Wildman's first four shots on his debut match in the 1983 Masters were all fouls. <laughs> Fantastic. I, I, I tell you what, it's a real shame, just on a slight, you know, diversion, that Mark lives in Spain and we never see him anymore because he would have been brilliant to oh. the podcast. Yeah. One of the brilliant raconteurs and storytellers uh, and someone who he had a career outside of snooker as well, didn't he? Because he worked in a bank. Uh, I think he was only a full time professional for a few years. So he kind of was able to look at it all from a slightly outsider's point of view. Um, it would be wonderful to get Mark on, actually. Maybe we'll go to Spain and do it. How about that? You do that live show there. Yeah, another one. A, d- a double re-rack, okay? The mm. first double re-rack, not just in the Masters, but in professional yes. tournament play, yeah. happened in the sixth frame of the first round match between Neil Folds and Dennis Taylor in 1987. After two abandoned attempts of 13 and 7 minutes duration, Taylor eventually claimed the frame with a break of 101. And also, there's a, there's a reference here. You talk about the pro-celebrity billiards. So 1977, uh, which was quite early on, obviously, in the Masters run, they played an experimental billiards tournament. And uh, Alex Higgins, it turned, turned out, was supposed to play, but misread the time. So he, he, <laughs> he, surprise. he didn't show up. It ended up, it says here, a final between Rex Williams and Fred Davis. Uh, Williams won with a break of 209 unfinished. And then it just says, television reaction was unenthusiastic and the tournament was not repeated. Wow, wow. I, I, I think that's the, the last line on the descriptions of most billiards events that have <laughs> appeared on television over the years. I mean, look, all these stories are absolutely wonderful and it must have taken him so much time. I suspect he may have ploughed through many, many back issues of snooker scene. But also, well, yeah. well go on, yeah. No, I, just to jump in, because that's actually mm. quite an important point. This, this and the Crucible Almanac, and indeed I think Ron Flores would, would accept Q-Tracker, mm. they do show up the value of snooker scene, the sort mm. of contribution that Clive has made in the pre-internet era in, in terms of pre- preserving the sports history. All the frame scores, all the results, quotes he's put in from various things, little quirky things as well. It's all come from that. And obviously things changed when the, when the internet came in and there was more easier ways of getting this information. But prior to about 20 years ago, really, mm. the prime source outside of newspapers, and even they wouldn't run frame scores, 
was snooker scene. And that, yeah. in some ways, is one of Clive's, well, possibly his greatest contribution to the sport. He's just preserving the history of the game. So guys like Matt and Chris and Ron can then take it on and, and put it out there in another way. What's that phrase he always uses, that he wanted to create a rolling wisdom? Wisdom, mm. of course, being the cricket annual, just for anyone who doesn't know that. Uh, and this underlines it. But what I was going to say is, I mean, some of the, the stats are also wonderful that he's obviously taken a huge amount of time to put together. And some of them are, you know, y- you know them, or at least you would know them if you thought about them. But then you <laughs> see them on paper and you think, wow, that's actually, you know, I hadn't thought of it like that. One of them, I think, was that Jimmy White has been in something like, is it 14 semifinals and only won two of them? There was some incredible and, stuff and, there, yeah. and Ron, Well, I think Ronnie is the opposite. I think he's been in, in, in 14 mm. semis and, and only lost one. Yes, <laughs> that's right. And even that, you know, when I was looking at the list of most finals. Now, if someone had said to me, how many Masters finals has Ronnie O'Sullivan been? And obviously, give me a couple of minutes. I'll think through them and I'll tell you it's 13. But I'd never actually thought about that. You, actually th- you know, when you do consider it, when you take into account that the Masters is always playing top players... To get to the final of it 13 times. And he hasn't even played in it every year. I think it was a year or two he opted out of it. So it's only when you see it written down like that that you think, what an incredible achievement that actually is. Well, of course, he opted out of it um, 2020, didn't he? And he said at the time he was doing that fist bumping. He said, if you shake hands, you can get germs. And he said, mm, Alex- that's Alex- right. he said, Alexandra Palace is a bit of a sick building. He said, I always seem to get ill here. And everyone at the time took the mickey, oh, there's Ronnie doing his thing, he won't shake mm. hands. All of a sudden, only a few <laughs> months later, there's a pandemic mm. and, and no one's shaking hands. One thing mm. I just wanted to, just to close on this, and, and I'll give the address out again if I, if I can get, it, get my teeth together um, so people can access it, because it is free, you can download it for free. But he, he, he very interestingly charts the sort of status of the Masters. Now, as early as 1978, Clive Everton in snooker scene was saying it feels like the game's second biggest tournament. Of course, in those days, though, there are only four or five events. Yeah. And Matt makes the point that in the 80s, when the big ranking events came along, and let's mention it, the Mercantile Classic, British Open, hey. Grand Prix, all those sort of events, the Masters wasn't actually regarded as the second biggest. Mm. Steve, Steve Davis is quoted here as saying that he, he won it, he, he, he lost, I think, the year, so he won it 88, I think he lost the year before, and he said, to be honest, I don't feel I put as much effort into this event as ranking tournaments. He targeted yeah. ranking tournaments. But, over the years, because it was a constant on the circuit and other, some of those other events started to fall away and also the money went up, there was a general feeling it became more prestigious. And I think now, well, I'll give my opinion. To me, it is the second biggest tournament now. I think a lot of people feel that. It has huge prestige. In normal times, it's played in front of that big London crowd. Going to Alexandra Palace after all these at Wembley, you know, it is a good venue. Uh, it's that slot as well, the first tournament of the calendar year in the, in the new year in January. But it wasn't always like that. It sort of start, it started at quite a high level because there weren't many events, maybe fell a little bit behind, but then recovered, I think, probably from the 90s onwards. And now I think everyone agrees it is a great, great event. Cliff Thorburn said this is the big daddy now after the World Championship. But to be fair, let's 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 say he was biased because he won it three <laughs> times in four yeah. years. Of course he was going to say that. Interestingly, what you're saying about Ronnie, you know, that he didn't want to go there in 2020 for the reason you outlined. Well, it seems remarkable he said that before the whole COVID thing hit. Then we're in the middle of COVID and he hugs Rob Walker in the middle <laughs> of the Crucible Arena. So uh, contradictory as ever, Ronnie. But it, it's an absolutely amazing piece of work. Absolutely hats off to it. And if you're the sort of person who listens to this podcast, and obviously you are, because otherwise you wouldn't be hearing this now, then this has really got so much for you. And uh, just settle down with it some evening. Absolutely fantastic. And uh, as I say, hats off for taking all the time and effort to do it. Well, the address is Masters Almanac dot blogspot dot com and as I say there is there's a few bits of the uh, information that he's still after so have a look at that if you, if you can help him out Matt Tresco is your man his email address is on the link now then we have had a few emails um, that we haven't been able to get to in recent weeks so uh, let's go on to James Wan who writes and this was during the French Open tennis so it was a few weeks ago he said you may have heard that Roger Federer has pulled out of the French Open in the middle of the tournament. The general reaction was sympathy and well-wishing from officials, fellow players, fans and the press. The important point here is that Roger isn't injured. He just wants to protect ageing knees. I know how he feels. Um, He said, this got me thinking, how would Ronnie O'Sullivan have been treated for pulling out for similar reasons? A direct equivalent would be that he wants to protect his ageing elbow. I think he'd be thoroughly admonished. People would say he's acting up, disrespectful of being all controversial. Nobody said Roger's behaviour was bizarre. 
but I'm 99% sure that the that most headlines would be for Ronnie. Snooker star pulls out with bizarre excuse. What do you think? Is Ronnie afforded as much respect as other top sports people in the world? I don't know what to think about this, really, because obviously this is a completely hypothetical um, situation. The Roger Federer thing, I did. I mean, I'm a massive fan of Federer. He's my favourite tennis player by far. Um, but I, I, I thought he was slightly what he did was slightly out of order, actually, because he'd beaten various people in the tournament. And then he decided, well, I'd like to prioritise Wimbledon, so I'm going to pull out of this event. I don't know how the people he, he felt, he, he beat, felt. But the thing is, he has, because he's never really put a foot wrong, he's always represented himself and his sport immaculately. I suppose because he's never been someone who's been in trouble, he was just treated sort of, OK, Roger, you've earned your right to do what you like sort of thing. In terms of how Ronnie would be, well, we don't know because it hasn't happened Um I think if, if a player, let's just say any player, was injured, then and they pull out of an event, then people understand that you know that that's that's just unfortunate. I think they get sympathy. I, I don't think you you know the only. I was thinking about this. I don't know what you think. The only sort of comparison I could think of, and it wasn't an injury, but John Higgins pulled yes. out of the Grand Prix, going back over twenty years now. I think it was two thousand. Yeah. yeah, it was in Telford, and he mm. pulled out because he got to the quarterfinals. And his brother was due to get married that day. And he said he'd been promised months in advance. He checked it out. I know the Grand Prix is on that week, but just to, just to check, the quarterfinals wouldn't be that day. Or I think there was an issue about would they split them over two days or play them on the same day. So either way, he was promised, whatever happens, John, you won't be playing that day because he came round and he did and he, and he pulled out. And it was a strange old do that because, you know, think, you could see both sides. Obviously, you know, he, he, his brother... A book that date you can't you know you have to book weddings quite in advance if you want to get a good venue and so on um but equally you know the the realities of the, the tour is that things change formats change and so on it was just unfortunate but it was a strange old do he was I, my memory of that was higgins was treated reasonably well in the, in the media yeah i think he was best man at the wedding as well mm. of course he obviously would have wanted to be there anyway the thing was he actually said that um he played a match after saying he was going to pull out I think, and I could be wrong about this, but off the top of my head, I think it might have been Terry Murphy from Derry who he was playing. And he had said prior to the match, if I win this match, I'm going to pull out of the tournament. So he was very upfront about it. The thing with Ronnie, I mean, you know, it, it's obviously it's a very different sport. So, I mean, it wouldn't really be a valid reason, would it, to, to pull out of an event. But, of course, you know, Ronnie has often pulled out of events in very strange circumstances. And, indeed, one event he entered and pulled out in the middle of a match. And uh, I don't remember him getting particularly hammered for it. So um, I think it's like all these things, isn't it? You know, um, it's like you said about Harry and Meghan, you know, after they did that interview. If you're pro-royal, then you're against them and, and vice versa. And it would be the same with this, you know, with anything with Ronnie. It's like people who are fans of his will defend him no matter what he does. And people who don't like him so much will probably criticize him a bit because it seems to be the way of the world now. Maybe we'll find out someday when... Actually, if Ronnie's listening, it would be just like him to think, oh, that'd be a good idea. I'll pull out saying I need to protect my elbow. <laughs> well, as you say, we, 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 may, we may find out. Yeah, the Higgins thing, though, it was, a, it was bizarre. I remember John D, the late John D, the journalist, who, because we had a discussion last week about Snook in the media, he, he got wind of it, he, he, I think, sort of on that afternoon, and he sort of came, came sidling in. And it was a sort of man of few words, John, in a lot of ways, but he sidled up and he said, uh, he said Higgins is going to pull out. Higgins is going to pull out. He said, you watch. And we said, OK, yeah, whatever. And then, of course, then he did. Anyway, that all seems a long time ago now. Malcolm Johnston. it is. Yeah, well, that's right. Yeah. Malcolm mm. Johnston writes, he said, well, of course, just finally on that, of course, that was pre-social media. So any sort of any sort of residual battering you might get from the public was just mm. in the in the sanctity of their own homes and sort of hubs. It wasn't wasn't a public thing. Anyway, Malcolm Johnston, he says, after watching some of the finest snook I've ever seen over the last year, do you think in years to come we'll be looking back at the tournaments during the tour stay at the Marshall Arena and wonder if it was a high watermark for the sport? I found it quite strange the main benefactor, Judd Trump, seems certain he's better off with a crowd, but my view is it, it may be the closest any players have to their practice form. Many commentators speak about players always striving to bring their closed-door club practice game to a match table, but haven't we just had that? I know a crowd can make for marvellous tension, and there's a regular Alexandra Palace for the Masters, I've seen how much it can affect a player, i.e. Wembo's Black B.O. Sullivan. But for a mainly TV audience, I feel the closed match arena has made the snooker over lockdown peerless. Well, it's certainly true. We saw a very high standard. Um, it did feel on, on the main table. I mean, you can't really speak for the outside tables because we don't see them. But it did feel sort of laboratory conditions at times. Now, players, I think, do obviously prefer 
a crowd because it gets you gets you into you know a good um, state of mind and also it it makes it feel like it's important. Um, but yeah, it's it, you know the the fact is the standard once they got their head down and played the standard was high and that was the really the the, the positive takeaway from the last year. Not only did we get the tournaments on, but we saw some fantastic snooker. I thought it was an outstanding season actually. You talk about the quality of play, but also the stories we had, like Jordan Brown, for example. So many deciding frame finishes to finals. Uh, I, I really did think it was an outstanding season. Whether that was because of the unusual circumstances or not, possible to say. And, of course, there was no crowd there, but you still had just as many people. In fact, probably more than usual watching on television. And that's a huge amount of pressure in itself as well. But I do agree with this basic point. I thought it was a wonderful season and... Uh, you know, perhaps sometimes we fall into the trap of always saying at the end of the season, oh, it's been another great year for snooker. But I do think this was one of the best seasons we ever had. Yeah. And also, of course, had the applause button. I know, I know someone who who was let loose on it, like to have a go at it. And he he was sort of um, other, otherwise engaged. He sort of turned around to talk to someone, ended up leaning on it. So in the, in the middle of a safety exchange, you had this burst of applause. Anyway, hopefully we'll never have to hear that again, we hope. Um now then, I did say earlier, you know, that the show is is in some crisis, but I'm gonna I'm gonna bring it back now because so I'm gonna I'm gonna inject something new into it. I say new. It's based on a couple of weeks ago we had the great Dave Tyndall was on the show, and uh, he brought a, a quiz based on uh, Pop Black Diaries from the 80s and also his own his own diary. And we had to well, if you, it's there to listen to if you want to go back over that. Well, I have in my hand here, okay, the program for the 1993. World Championship. Of course oh I do. Words. It fell out of a cupboard the other day, and of course, as you do, I started flicking through it. And in this year, they did obviously profiles of all the players, but they also did a little questionnaire, okay, asking players <laughs> their favourite things. So I thought, obviously, this is a one-sided quiz because I have all the answers. I thought I would ask you if you could name some of the players from some of the clues I'm going to give you, okay? Right. So long as I'm not accused of cheating this time, like I was in the last one. <laughs> let, let it go. <laughs> You, you still, you still won. Okay, so I'm, yeah. so obviously the top sixteen. This is from 1993. On the front, I'll just well, just, well, can I just say I'm glad you said top sixteen because some of the qualifiers that year were people like John Giles, Sean Mellish. Yeah, I mean there were some real Spencer Dunn. Spencer Dunn. That was the yeah. other one I was trying to think of. Carl Payne. So I'm very glad you said top sixteen. Fifteen of whom, by the way, won their first round match. Indeed, yeah. I mm. think uh, was it Doug Mountjoy was the one who. who yeah, he he beat Robert. It was, yes, it was actually, oh, yeah. the first fifteen matches to finish all went to the seeds. It would have been an entirely seeded last sixteen, but for for Doug winning that match. Anyway, we digress. Well, I'll, yeah, I'll just describe the program, embassy program. Three pounds, by the way. I don't know if that one seems a lot of money in nineteen ninety three. Stephen Andrews on the front, of course, he beat Jimmy White in one of the all time classics the year before. Uh, we got a welcome message from the Imperial Tobacco Man, John Spencer, who was chairman. In fact, it says here. One million pounds is another milestone. So that was the first year where they had a million pounds first prize. But anyway, so the top 16, obviously I'm not going to say they are, but, uh, you know, a lot of people will, will, will sort of remember them as we go. So I'm going to read three clues for each one, OK? Play along okay. at home. No, you know, no, bet, no, no wagering, please. It's all for fun. So the, the first player, OK? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Favourite food, chips. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, Favourite TV programme, it just says sport. Oh, my word. Yeah. Favourite music, Dire Straits. So that we got Chips, uh, favourite TV programme, sport, and favourite music, Dire Straits. It's funny, I actually have this programme sitting in the next room. I'm very tempted yeah. to go and guess, but... Um, <laughs> no, I'm going to guess Jimmy. It's not right. Um, mm. No, I'll give you another clue. Um yeah. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure you're going to get know, it from this. I know Jimmy yeah. liked his chips in those days. But, yeah. Hobbies golf. That doesn't really narrow it down, does it? Yeah. No, that's no help whatsoever. Uh, it's Terry Griffiths, is the answer. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Tire straight. That time, or maybe just before that time, that was kind of the stock answer for a lot of snooker players for favourite music. It's a bit like now, if you ask a favourite film of a snooker player, they say The Shawshank Redemption. Yeah, um even though it's clearly not the right answer. Anyway, we'll move on. So that's uh, yet to score, but uh, there's still time. Uh, I like like the idea that there could be a right answer to that question. I mean, surely it is the right answer if they're asked what their favourite film is. The question is not what is David Hendon's favourite film. Well, 
the Shawshank Redemption is not the best film ever. It, it's, it's the answer sports people give to the question, what's the best film ever? My advice, watch more films. Anyway, we'll, we move on. Um, favourite TV programme, Blind Date. <laughs> uh, fav- uh, hobbies, Scrabble. Uh, oh, okay, this has got to help. Favourite food, Thai. Oh, well, hang on a minute now. Okay, now, now this is interesting because after two clues, I thought I knew it. After the third, I thought, that's just so obvious. Because I was going to say, what on earth? Well, is that your final answer? Yeah, why not? It's the correct answer, yeah. I mean, oh, there's right. a little, little bit stereotypical. Yeah, but favourite the... food, Thai. Well, that's, that's fine. Well, why, why shouldn't it be? Why shouldn't it be? <laughs> you know, okay, you're from Thailand, but you're a bit more specific than that. <laughs> okay, well, you're off the... Any, all the same. No, I'm off, off, I'm off, off the mark. I'm, I'm pleased yeah. with this. Yeah, this is good stuff. Yeah. Uh, okay, we move on. Uh, favourite food, Indian. Nice. Remember, just to, if you're just tuning in, I don't even know if that works on a podcast, but so this is the 1993 top 16 in the World yeah. Championship programme, and they're being asked uh, their favourite things. So, favourite food, Indian. Mm-hmm. Fa- favourite music, Guns N' Roses. Okay. <laughs> F- uh, hobbies, motorcycles. Uh, okay. If it's motorcycles, I think he was still in the 16 at that time. Then I'm going to say Steve James. That's correct, yeah. I think that's the one, really, that, uh, you know, it sort of gives it away. But, yeah, he was, of course, mm. big into that. I mean, he had various various accidents, didn't he? But Well, he was nearly killed, I think. In, well, in, there, on you the yeah. <laughs> there you are. There you are. Funnily enough, I mentioned John D. That I saw Steve Jones at, at his funeral. Uh, he, oh, he, looks, yeah. he, looks very, he looks very well, actually, because he'd be 60 now. But, yeah, um, I think they played, uh, they played on the same team for a while, actually, because John was a very good player. Or, or maybe he was the manager of the team. Yeah, anyway, he managed... Martin yeah, Clark, it. and all, all yeah. those sort of people. But, of course, also, um, we talked about the Crucible Almanac. That's one of the great stats in there. Steve James and Jimmy White yeah. shared, shared the same birthday, and they played each other in the semis in 91 on their birthday. Anyway, we move on. So it's two out of three. They're doing well. Um, okay. <laughs> Favourite TV programme, Our Vida's Own Pet. <laughs> Favourite food, Indian and Cantonese. Most admired, The Pope. Oh. oh, okay. Well, on the basis of the last one, and because <laughs> I'm fairly sure he would have been the only Roman Catholic in the top 16 at the time. There's a sentence you know, never expected to hear on the podcast. I'm going to guess Dennis. Correct, Dennis Taylor. Yeah. Is the answer. <laughs> he actually went to, um, Dennis actually went, to, you know, there's a Catholic church just across the road from the Crucible. He actually went there on the morning of the of the final when he won the World Championship. There we are. Mm. Uh, okay. What's so that? Three, three out of four. Yeah, that's I'm very pleased with this. Yeah. yeah, you see, we're turning the podcast around. <laughs> people said it. People said, yeah. Anyway, uh, right. Next, we move on. Uh, here we go. Uh, favorite TV program? Sports. It says sports programs. I think that's supposed to be programs. It's a bit <laughs> late to correct. A bit late to correct it. Yeah. Uh, favorite food? Indian. Doesn't give much away. Favorite music, okay, mm. and this is quite quite ex- expansive. Elvis Costello, Morrissey, and Roger Waters. Wow. So someone who likes music, anyway. Yeah, yeah. Elvis Costello, Morrissey, and Roger Waters. Good selection, that. Yeah, um, well, they sort of anti Dire Straits. Although yeah. I quite like Dire. I quite like Dire Straits. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I am going to say Willie Thorne. No, it's Neil Foles. <laughs> really? Yes. Yes, it is. Yeah, actually, do you know what? I should have got that one because I know well, he was a massive music fan. Well, I could have said hobbies, greyhound racing, and watching cricket, but then you would have got it then. Oh, I definitely would oh. have got it then. Yes, yeah. of course. These days, it's all neutral milk hotel and all that stuff. But anyway, that's <laughs> it. In, in those days, that was an avant-garde response. That Elvis Costello, mm, Morrissey, yeah. and Roger Waters. Let's move on. Uh, okay. <laughs> right. Uh, favorite food: Marmite. <laughs> favorite. Favourite colour, Beamish. Favourite TV programme, Rosie and Jim. <laughs> Actually, I have to say it's ironic. I've only got two wrong so far. One of them is, of all these 16, the one I know by far the best. Um, so we have fav- fa- yeah. Hang on. Favourite food, Marmite. Favourite yeah. colour, Beamish. Favourite TV programme, Rosie and Jim. Is it Steve? It is Steve. Steve, yeah. Steve hates questionnaires. Yeah. Will will not take them seriously, but uh, yes, but you 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 divine that. Yeah. Now, I think uh, I think I actually remember reading that Rosie and Jim answer. Yeah. 
favorite TV program, Bread Cheers. Now, sorry, could... sorry, sorry. Yeah. Can I just say Steve did manage to barge his way through the field a number of times, so it's Don't appropriate need... like Rosie and Jim. Sorry. Don't need to say that. Favorite TV program, which is Bread Cheers. Of course, that could be the answer to favorite food, but it's Bread and Cheers, your favorite <laughs> TV programs. Uh, favorite music, funk and soul. Hobbies, a lot of things here. Watching football, horse racing, golf, collecting black and white movies. What, Dominic? No, he wasn't in the 16 then. Can you give me the first clues again there? What were they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Favourite TV programme, Bread and Cheers. Favourite okay. music. Fun football, horse racing, collecting black and white movies. Football, horse racing. Oh, is it? No, was he in the top 16 then? Surely not. No, I, I'm thinking of someone here, but no, I don't think he was still in the top 16. So, do you know what? I'm going to say it anyway, just because, was it John Virgo? No, it was John Parrott. I was going to say that until you said collecting black and white movies. Well, the clues are there. Bread, obviously, yeah. Liverpool, yeah, Liverpool. horse racing's yeah. in there, golf, anyway. But that's, uh, that's exactly it. That's why I was going to say him. But then I thought, John Parrott collects black and white movies. I don't know whether anyone's still keeping score or not. Let's, yeah. let's, let's, yeah. do, a, let's do a couple more. Yeah. Um, you know, this, this, when, when this is on ITV in primetime, people will remember where it started. Right. Yeah. Uh, okay. Favourite music, Simply Red. Uh, Favourite food, Chinese and Italian. Favourite TV programme? Whose line is it anyway? <laughs> yeah. That's it. Right. Blimey. Um... <laughs> Favourite music, Simply Red. I sort of feel you should know. All, all these, like, I, I would have read this programme, so these these things all sound familiar. Um... Whose line is it anyway? I'm trying to think of player, a snooker player with a good sense of humour. Shouldn't take long to sort through those. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know. Nigel Bond? No, you're relatively close. He's the right sort of same age, I guess. Alan McManus. Yeah. Oh, I should have got that, actually, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. Alan does have a very good sense of humour. Yeah. We'll do two yeah. We'll do two yeah. more and then draw a line under it all. Yeah. Uh, Favourite colour, red. <laughs> Simply <laughs> red. I don't know why even they're asked that. Anyway, favourite colour, red. Favourite TV programme, Casualty. Favourite music, and there's a list here, Genesis, Peter Gabriel and Elton John. Stephen Hendry. You've come in very quickly there. It's not Stephen Hendry, but what no. I will do, what I will do mm. is I will... Uh, there's another... Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll give you another clue. Most admired, my parents, particularly my mother. Mm. That's, not, that's not my mother, it's the person who's, yeah, who's been asking this. Yeah. Mm. I'll tell you what, I'm going to guess Willie Thorne again. It's nice, Darren Morgan. Yeah. Oh, right. yeah. Last one, people will say, thank goodness. Yes. Okay. Right. Okay, most admired, Ivan Lendl, Steve Davis and Nick Faldo. Uh, favourite food, or, now this is the, 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 probably the answer of the whole thing. Favourite food, all except sea slugs. Okay. <laughs> favourite TV programme, Frank Sidebottom and The Shed Show. My word. So we've got Ivan Lendl, Steve Davis, and Nick Fowler, most of mine. Favourite food, all except sea slugs. Favourite TV programme, Frank Sidebottom and The Shed Show. Yeah, I'm trying to think of uh, a player who would have been in the top 16 at that time. Like can, I just, can, I just, can I just say, while, we're, while, we, while you're thinking of the answer, Nick and Phil from Talking Stuka have Sean Murphy on this week. Here's, here's us. <laughs> here's us reading questionnaires from the 93... World Championship programme. We've got to up our game anyway. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Let's, yeah. let's see if you can at least end on a high by getting the answer. I really don't know. Uh, Gary Wilkinson? Correct. It's oh, there we go. Yeah. There we go. By a process of elimination, really, because... Well, i tell you what. Let, let's, just, let's, just, let's just do a little twist on it, OK? I'll give you the player... And you see if you can guess what the answers are. Okay, so I'm going to give you Stephen Hendry. Okay, if I get even one of these right, I'll be absolutely astonished. Well, Stephen well. Hendry. So Stephen Hendry's hobbies in 1993 is listed two. Right. Well, winning the world championship. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and what? Did you, are you going to? And winning the UK championship, yeah. the Masters. Yeah. yeah. Two. Uh, well, golf. Come on, yeah. Golf's got to be one. Yeah. yeah. And is he going to say something like eating out? 
No, well, music. So yeah. yeah. Uh, I was going to say that then. Okay. Favorite music. He's listed two uh, two bands here. It's Phil Collins. No, Phil Collins isn't a band. I just remember him talking once about Phil Collins. So two bands. Uh, Stephen Hendry. So 1993. I'm trying to think of bands that might have been bit. You two. Surprisingly not, actually. No, I thought they would have been in there, but mm-hmm. no. No. Were, were they bands that were big at that time? Oh, yes, very much so. Okay, right, that's good. So Guns N' Roses? No. Uh, Nir- Nirvana? Nope. Just a reminder, everyone, Vanilla Icy Shergar podcast is still available <laughs> if, you don't, if you're not enjoying this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, go on. G- give me the nationality of one of the bands, even. Well, we've met, well one's been mentioned already, uh, British... Uh, Simply Red? Yes. And uh, the other one... Um, well, uh, um, they were sort of came out, I suppose, of they were around the sort of grunge movement. They weren't really grunge, but they became a massive stadium band. Um, huh. The grunge movement, but well, they were from the whole scene, but they sort of broke out of that scene, I suppose. Um, yeah, I don't know. Pearl Jam, REM, yeah. REM. Okay, yeah. what, did, what did REM have to do with grunge? Well, no, they were around that whole scene, weren't they? I think. <laughs> what does that mean? They were around that whole scene. <laughs> <laughs> this is the worst quiz ever. This is dreadful. This well, actually reminds me, I've got to mention this. Funny, I was only thinking about this, I think it was today or yesterday, how on a radio show that I did the sport on many, many years ago, they had a competition. They used to come up with some bizarre ideas for competitions. But one of them was a true or false thing where they would give you a subject and they'd read out a series of statements and you had to tell them which of those statements were false. So if you thought they'd said a statement that was false, you'd say false. And if you were right, you got a point. But if you were wrong, you didn't lose anything. And there was nothing for saying it was true. So pretty quickly, the contestants cottoned on that if you just said false to everything, you'd get the maximum number of points. And this dragged on for a few days until someone sort of wisely thought of changing the format. But uh, I think we, we may have come up with an even worse quiz format. Speaking of dragging on, yeah, I mean, REM, a lot, a lot of people losing their religion as we speak. But anyway, yes, I'll, I'll give you, I'll, we'll do two more. I'll, I'll give you Jimmy White. So Jimmy White's, in 1993, he's listed two hobbies. Don't say losing world finals. Well, that's, 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 that's cruel. Literally what I was going to say. <laughs> um, two hobbies in, uh, in 1993 for Jimmy. Um, I guess... Um, all sorts of answers. I well, they're both, they're both sports. They're both sports. Well, horse racing, sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And golf? Yes. Okay. Uh, Favourite music is listed a singer and a band. It's a singer, uh, a man or a woman? A man. <laughs> we're, we're, well, one, we're one step away from sounds like, aren't we? Yeah, indeed. <laughs> from, 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 what, from what nationality? British or American? British, or? yeah, well, yeah. Give, give me a clue. Come on. There's, there's so many. Um, he, well, he's, an old, he's sort of an age, now an ageing rocker. I, I mean, he's, yeah, he's a well-known guitarist. Um, Eric Clapton? Eric Clapton. And the yeah. band you should get, really, I think. Jimmy White. Well, who, what, Jimmy White's favourite band has got to be. It can only be one, can't there? Really? Well, he's literally best friends with one of them. <laughs> oh, right, okay, yeah, yeah, the Rolling Stones. Eric Clapton, I have to say, I went to see him in concert about 10 years ago, and around the same time I saw Elbow. And both of them were very, very good. And um, even though I wouldn't be a major fan of either of them, but they both gave a good concert. But Guy Garvey, the singer of Elbow, he, he almost ruined his own concert by just talking too much in between the songs. There was almost as much of that as there was of the songs themselves. When I went to see Eric Clapton, he literally walked on the stage, waved, sat down, played his songs, stood up at the end and waved again. Not well, a word out of him other than that. Well, that's probably uh, that's a good reason for that, because he once said something really appalling on stage, um, which he, he st- still follows him around to this day. We'll move on. Um, yeah. yeah, he wasn't. Yeah, anyway, uh, we'll move on. So right, J- in 1993, Jimmy White's favourite TV programme. Well, come on again. I need a clue here. It was a sitcom. Okay. Um, British, American? Yeah, British. It featured the people in it, arguably are better known for being in a in a different sitcom. Well, in 1993, what, what channel would it have been on? BBC or ITV? I think it was a BBC Two show. BBC Two, a sitcom in 1993, and the people in it were better known for, be, for being in a previous show? Or? Yeah, yeah. Hmm. 
Oh, nothing's coming to mind. Oh, what, what, uh, 1993? You're going to have to give me another clue there. Well, one of the characters, I think, if memory serves, was, was called Eddie Hitler. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, so, bottom. Yes, Rick Mail and Adrian Edmondson. Okay, we're going to end this with with the one last one. And if you get any of these, then a prize will be forthcoming because we're going to go to Alain Robidoux, okay? (laughs) Who most admired? Who did Alain Robidoux most admire? It's not a snooker player in in 1993. It is a sportsman. uh, Sportsman? Going to tell me what sport? Um, Hang on, no, don't. Don't. I'm going to make a guess. I'm going to make a guess. Wayne Gretzky. No. Oh. It's a golfer. Golfer. In nineteen ninety three. Greg Norman? Nope. Baldo? Sevi? Nope. Oh, I d I don't know. It wouldn't have been a Canadian player because they didn't have any leading players. I think I think if I'm right, that he'd won the, the Augusta Masters at this point. Well had he won it that year? I've probably so. Pressing your knowledge. Well, I tell you what, well, I'm thank you. I'm going to uh, I'm going to look that up actually. You're not doing anything else, are we? So uh, uh, let's have a look. Uh, Freddie Couples. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Now he had won it the year before. Yeah, well, there you are. Right. So yeah, it's a re- reason to admire him. Okay. We'll, we'll. I promise you, we'll we'll finish this soon. Hobbies. He's actually listed three hobbies. Um, in fact, I'm just going to tell you because badminton, golf, and watching television. But favorite music. Okay. Yeah. Uh, two singers and a band. Have been listed here. It's all the same sort of people. I notice actually. Right. It's all so, the same. Same ballpark. Um, yeah. Some clues then. Um, the singer had been in a, a well-known band and then had a very successful solo uh, career. He also had what you could argue was the best video of the eighties. Maybe Peter Gabriel. Correct. Yeah. Uh, the next one is from your neck of the woods. What, a band? No, he's a singer. Yeah. Singer? Yeah. Van Morrison? No. <laughs> mm. I think of... So a solo singer, a, a man or a woman? A man. He had one particularly big hit, a sort of ball, soup, so, soupy ballad. Um, uh, and he's Irish. Yeah, I think... Johnny, jo- Johnny Logan? No, uh, Chris Berg. Yeah. Oh, OK. I wouldn't and have got uh, that. a band... Uh, well, actually, the band uh, features one of the people Neil Foles ch- that chose. Forgotten who they are now. So, so okay. So he said Elvis Costello, and who were the other two? He said. Well, if I tell you that, you'll get them, won't you? Yeah, that's why I want you to tell me. <laughs> I may as well because that will bring this to an end. Morrissey. Yeah. And... Oh, the Smiths. Yeah. Yeah, but it's not. Yeah. But it, that's not the answer. Oh and right, sorry. <laughs> Roger Waters. Oh, okay, so Pink Floyd. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. Well, there we are. So, listen, it's not been the, the episode's not over yet, though. So, the, the good news is we have got uh, Wayne Griffiths on. Uh, hopefully, if I could edit the two interviews together, uh, you wanted to say something about Wayne, I think. No, just yeah, when you mentioned he was going to be on, it reminded me there was a tournament in the nineteen eighties, and it was a father and son event, and uh, Steve played in it with uh, his dad Bill, and uh, Neil played in it with his dad Jeff. Now, you might spot a flaw in this format here. But Terry, Terry played in it with Wayne, and Dennis played in it with one of his sons. And it was uh, sponsored by Pirelli, who I think were, uh, mm. they made shoes or whatever. So it was a father and son event. But obviously, it was a massively flawed event, because you've got two pros there playing together, and all the rest are, are a pro and a not particularly high-ranking amateur. So inevitably, Neil and Jeff won it. So, uh, yeah, I wonder if Wayne remembers playing on that. I'm sure he does. I don't think it was on TV or anything, but I think it was played in front of a crowd. Well, just to say about, if if you think the podcast has been a difficult listen so far, uh, the interview, Wayne was very interesting, talking about Snooker Quotient, but the, one word of warning, I'm in the UK, he's in Hong Kong. A couple of times the connection did drop out. Hopefully, you, you know, you can get all the relevant information. And he does have a website, whatisyoursq.com. That's whatisyoursq.com, which contains all the information you need if you're interested in this. It's a snooker handicapping system, as you'll find out. But a couple of times, we do slightly lose each other. Um, it's been that sort of show, hasn't it? But that, mm. the, next week, we may have a special guest. I'm not going to say mm. any more on that. We're hopeful, and it's a big name, believe me. We're going to be, we're going to be right back in business next week if this comes off. Um, if it doesn't, then we'll be... I think, I, think, I, think, I think you're slightly overplaying our hand there on two grounds. One, we haven't even asked him yet. True. <laughs> And two, you know, with the greatest of respect, I think you're overselling them ju- just a little. But but oh, let's put it good. this way. 
regular listeners to the podcast will will, will, will greatly enjoy mm. having this person on. Seems remarkable we're talking about. We haven't even asked him yet. But no, well, uh, I'm crossed. hopeful. I'm hopeful. If not, then we're going to be reduced to, to making up anagrams of players' names or something like that to fill the time. But anyway, despite all of that, we are still members of the Sports Social Network. They'll probably kick us out after this week. Um, you can check out their other podcasts, of course, and you can email us. And please do, otherwise <laughs> we'll have nothing to talk about. Uh, snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. That's snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. If you've been thinking, oh, there's no point, I won't read it out, believe me, we will, we will take anything. Uh, after, to- after, after you've heard this week's show, you'll know that the bar is set extremely low. Well, you know, even you look at the great sort of, even the great sort of sitcoms, you know, there's been rotten episodes of Cheers, haven't there? You know, the, the point is that you can't, we not, can't. Not, not this rotten, though. We can't, we can't, we can't summon up gold every week. But but do stay with us. Wayne Griffiths is coming up shortly. So it is not technically true to say goodbye bye. Um, the podcast continues very shortly. So I'm joined from Hong Kong by Wayne Griffiths. We're going to talk about uh, Snooker Quotient. Uh, very soon, Wayne. But first of all, well, first of all, thanks for coming on the podcast. How are you? I'm well, Dave. Thanks very much for uh, having me on the podcast. It's a uh, it's a great honour. I listen to it an awful lot from here in uh, over in Hong Kong. Uh, very pleased to be a part of it. You're doing a great job. Thank you very much. Well, uh, we'll get on to the site to SQ later. But uh, you've got an interesting snooker background because, of course, you grew up very much in a snooker house. Your father is Terry Griffiths, the great Terry Griffiths, former world champion, one of the great players of the 80s and, and 90s. Um, so snooker was, I guess, in your blood right from the start. Yes, uh, we, we were a sporting family, uh, I guess. And, and dad, obviously, reaching the pinnacle of his sport, uh, allowed us to to move to a house that had a snooker table for him to practice on probably when I was about nine or ten years old. So, yeah, we were introduced to snooker at that stage, uh, very young, both myself and my brother, um, Darren. So snooker was, you know, dad was 1979 world champion. And then from, from then on, he was his career lasted 20 years. So snooker was a, a massive part of our lives, um, yeah, certainly uh, as, as young players. And to what extent did you play? I mean, I, I, I guess, you know, you, as you say, you, your dad's a player, there's a table in the house you're going to play, but d- d- did it become something that you necessarily wanted to follow follow him into? Because it's quite hard, isn't it, when a parent is so successful for the child to, to sort of, I guess, match that success? Yeah, I think I have this conversation um, quite a lot. Uh, I certainly played the game j- just to a, what you'd call a good club standard, maybe, um, you know, century break player, um, followed in my dad's footsteps of being the youngest ever winner of the sort of local Lesley district tournament, but I didn't follow in dad's footsteps from then on. Um, neither did my brother. My brother's a teaching professional in golf. Uh, he's a director of golf in Monterrey out in Portugal. Uh, and I I went, football was my passion. Uh, I followed that and, and snooker was a hobby for me. I, I'm, not, I'm not quite sure if my brother and I shied away from it because of the the shadow that um, dad's success may have cast. It never felt that way, but maybe it was a part. Dad was very, very clear. He didn't want to push us into it, which which Mm. was good in some ways. Uh, But I came back to it later on, uh, enjoyed it a little bit more and then got back into the coaching side with dad's help as well. Yeah, I was going to say, obviously, you have ultimately stayed in snooker. So how did the sort of coaching side of it start? Uh, I went back to, Dad had a club, the Terry Griffiths Matchroom in Llanelli, uh, and in 2003, Dad was, you know, looking to wind down a little bit. Uh, he was busy with the coaching and that sort of thing. So I, I went back to the club then to help him out there. And really, we wanted to to keep a bit of a legacy. We wanted his name to remain in the sport. So we were quite keen to keep the, the club open. So I left my job at the time uh, and went back into the family business. And the club to do the PBSA coaching back into the coaching that side and, and uh, of course I was working every day with dad as my mentor so um, really fantastic learning opportunity for myself and you're now in Hong Kong um, how did that come about it's uh, quite a move I guess from you know Clenethley to the other side of the world yeah, as you can imagine, a big 
family decision uh, came out of the blue, really, the job offer in 2000 and, uh, 2010. Um, yeah, there was a had been reasonably successful here and had got itself to a point where it earned itself enough points to move into the Hong Kong Sports Institute, um, where they then get funding for, for travel around the world. The players get paid a grant. Uh, and luckily for me, they also employed a head coach. So uh, as part of a, a search around the world, as it was, they, they turned me over in Wales, brought me over for an interview. And yeah, I was lucky enough to get the job just before the Asian Games in 2010. We'll move on uh, to SQ in a moment, I promise. But a lot of people, as you're in Hong Kong, will be, will be, inter- will be interested to know how Marco Fu's getting on because, of course, we didn't see him at all last season. He couldn't travel because of the pandemic. I think quite rightly, Will Snooker Tour giving him a wild card for the new season. But uh, has, has he been able to sort of play during the last year at all, just even just in, in sort of practice? Yeah, Marco is still playing. Uh, he's, you know, obviously very pleased that... Um, uh, WST and WPBSA have given him a wild card and he's looking forward to come back onto the tour hopefully as soon as possible this season uh, things have been like all around the world uh, but Hong Kong has been particularly strict with quarantine and travel uh, every trip we apply for even now where uh, things are getting better has to be stringently checked from a medical point of view before they will allow us to travel so yeah the last year year and a half it's um, it's been very difficult for us to get out of Hong Kong because of the um, uh, the COVID situation and, and the policies in place here to try and keep us all safe uh, but yes he's practicing hard and hoping to get back on the tour as soon as possible. That's good to know and and I suppose pre-COVID we'll have to say like what, what's the snooker scene like in Hong Kong I mean is it is it uh, sort of a popular sport there's a lot of people listening I guess won't won't be aware of how snooker is received in various parts of the world. So what, what's the scene like in Hong Kong? Yeah, it is a very popular sport here. Um, the success of Marco uh, uh, and Oni mm. as well in the next year. The success of those two guys uh, has, has really raised the profile. The fact that they're both very personable, very uh, successful, um, you know, um, good good figureheads for the sport that has really uh, piqued the interest here. I think the original boom here in Hong Kong was back in when Barry Hearn they came over here in the mid-80s mm. and that was a real boom. I hear stories of snooker 120 snooker tables and and the list uh, through the 90s, it was really big. Very popular, not so popular now. A lot of it to do the rent is so expensive here that uh, to run a snooker club is um, is very, um, how can I say, very, very hard to make money. You've got to be really... So the numbers of clubs have gone down since the 90s, but uh, no, they still have uh, a lot of interest here, especially, as you say, with, with Marco on the main tour. Yeah, and uh, we should say good luck, obviously, to Anya as well, because uh, she's coming onto the tour. And that one thing you can't fault her for is enthusiasm. She seems to absolutely love the game. She always seems to be smiling and just happy to be to be sort of pursuing her dream, I guess. Yes, uh, she is a very positive, hardworking, uh, and she's she's relishing the chance to have a go on the tour. Uh, she knows it'll be a very difficult task for her, but. I can assure you she will be as prepared as well as she can be. Uh, she will give everything on the table and she'll take away uh, everything she can as well in terms of learning and personal growth, I'm sure. Excellent. OK, well, so Snooker Quotient, it's a, it's a handicap system in effect. Um, well, you explain it, Wayne. What is it and how was it developed? Yeah, the Snooker Quotient is, is set up to be a snooker handicap, uh, as you say, it was started, Dad and I were discussing this maybe at least 15 years ago. How can we, we have a lot of players in for coaching. How, how can we grade them now? How can we let them know uh, they're getting stronger? Uh, you and, your, and and everybody listening will be aware that high breaks have been used in the past. You know, are you a century break player? Have you done a maximum? Or is your high break 50? That That's what generally was used. But we always felt that, uh, especially my brother was a golfer, right? So we, we always saw the golf handicap as a real 
motivator. You know, it played uh, allowed people to uh, to see exactly where they were now. Um, they knew what a professional standard would be. Uh, they they knew a single figure handicap golfer would be considered a very good standard. So we saw in golf that people could clearly see how they were getting better from a handicap, and and we saw that as maybe a gap in the market or something that could help snooker players. Um, you know, the, the goal really with the handicap system was to give people more enjoyment so that you'd have more people playing, hopefully, playing more often, so that there'd be more people in clubs. You know, the clubs are, have had a hard time, especially recently with COVID. And, and, and coaching as well. We World Snooker have done a lot of good work with coaches. Uh, the numbers are up over 400 now around the world, I think. But we're still looking at comparisons with golf, where maybe they've got 29,000 working professionals in, in the US alone, earning a good living. Uh I'm not sure how many snooker coaches there are earning a good living, but we, we feel there's some some bridge needs to be built maybe between a very popular TV sport uh, into a participation sport that can be coached and where people can see themselves actually getting better and enjoy the game uh, from that. So that's why we set up the handicap system to try and serve people all the way from beginner and to professional so they can see a complete pathway um, to improvement. So how does it work? How do you get uh, a, a, an SQ handicap? Basically, on the website, you can download uh, an app on the SQ or whatisyoursq.com website. And with that app, uh, it allows you to uh, do a number of tests. So there are four key skills areas, uh, and that is brick building, cue ball control, long potting and general skills. So there are tests for each of those key skill sets. And you have to do it through the app, though, Dave. So you can't uh, roll up into the club and, and do the test and then write us a score down. These tests have to be recorded through the app. And immediately as you record them, then after you submit them, they are submitted to the, to our website cloud, as it were. And every test is, is verified. So if you do a test and, and you give a score, that score will be checked so that everybody that sees that your SQ is maybe 50 can be assured that, that that's been done uh, under the control of the app through a video, and that video has been uh, seen and verified as well. So it's not an honor system. Um, once you start a test, you have to complete it. So you're under quite a bit of pressure as well. So it's not only a test of your skill, it's a test of your nerve as well. Mm. So in effect, as you said, there's these four key areas and then they're combined into some sort of algorithm, is that right? And then you get a you get a score. Um, and is it the case that then maybe a few months down the line you'll test it again to see the extent to which you've improved? Yeah, certainly in Hong Kong do a number of tests per year. I use it for relative assessment amongst the players here in Hong Kong. Um, but yes, for people who want to sign up for the S. Do the do the tests as as often as they want. Uh, they only we only ask them to to do four tests every every two years. But right. you can do a test every week if you want. The way we set this up, we want to encourage coaching. So if you do a long potting test today, you can't do that long potting test for another seven days. The idea is that you you know you look at what you've done, you reflect on the test, you go and talk to your coach, or you go and practice it. And then you come back at least seven days later to have another go rather than just, you know, having a, a repeat test and repeat tests all the time. It really is set up as an improvement tool. Now, I'm afraid I've, I've slightly lost you, Wayne. Can you still hear me? Yeah, I got you, but I lost okay, you. Okay, sorry. Second. Yeah, yeah, no, we just we, obviously you're in Hong Kong. I'm in the UK. We cut out a little bit, but we'll we'll persevere. So I guess that is the idea in time that this can be used in, in tournaments because snooker snooker handicap is not quite, or so far has not been quite as sophisticated as the golf handicap. You know, in in a handicap event, say there are pros in it, then the amateurs get whatever fourteen start, twenty one start, whatever. But this seems slightly more complex. And is, is the idea that, you know, you can use this to sort of grade players in tournaments? Uh, 
Yes, for sure. Uh, I mean, we have we've collected 10 years of data uh, on the system already here in Hong Kong. And, um, you know, we've been fortunate enough to set up a, 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 co- a coaching partnership now with the WPBSA uh, to take this out into into the wider world, as it were. So, yes, it's definitely uh, set up in the future to to have like a, an SQ uh, handicap calculator. So you would put in your SQ. I would put my SQ in. And uh, we would generate what would be uh, a correct number of points that one player would give another to to make that a level playing field as you do in golf. Mm. Um, so as well as being a training tool, a development tool, so that you can see are you a beginner, are you a intermediate, are you a, a club international, top amateur, professional player, where are your, where does your SQ put you in that scale? As well as doing that for training, it, it will. Uh, allow people to play on a level playing field in the future as well. Also, certainly that's our goal anyway. Yeah. And of course, in golf, uh, the idea is obviously to get your handicap down, to become a scratch golfer. So is there a, a certain number that can be aimed at un- under this system, this handicap system? Yeah, there certainly is. It ranges from zero to 100. Uh, so there's a wide range. Um, most people would sit between 10 and 80. Uh, I guess. So the beginners, uh, anybody can do this uh, SQ test, even if you're a beginner, uh, you'd be in the low digits. But yes, you'd want to improve. So we're moving the opposite way to golf. As your SQ gets higher, uh, then your game would be deemed to be better. So as your SQ creeps up, yeah, there's certainly at each stage we can see, you know, for a top amateur or a professional, you'd need to be much closer to 100 uh, than a beginner, obviously. But nobody can get 100. The, the test is set up so that everybody can strive to continually improve. It's not a destination 100. You won't get there. Uh, it will really be a, an improvement journey for, for whoever takes it up. But on the website, yes, people can see what we would expect that uh, a professional would would need to achieve in terms of uh, an SQ. And I, and I guess for a coach such as yourself, it's it's a good way of tracking improvement. Um, in players because you know you can sort of from the naked eye think okay well he, he's potting more long ones than he used to be or she's you know sort of making higher breaks than she was but actually this is a way of of tracking it and and for the players to track it as well to, to track the way they're improving or hopefully improving yes that's certainly how we've used it here uh, in Hong Kong we've had players start at 11 years old uh, go on to be world junior champions and challenge tour winners and are nudging, pushing onto the main tour now. And yes, you can see a development profile emerge. Uh, that is, as you said, not based on subjectivity or just the naked eye. It's actually based on on hard facts. The SQ is taken down to, to two decimal points and you can clearly see if you're improving or you're not. And a little bit different to the golf as well in that with the four areas of long potting, break building, cue ball control and general skills, it not only shows you your overall SQ, but it actually targets areas for you and your coach where you can see that you're behind the curve. So certain areas may be strong where other areas are weak. So then you can be more efficient in targeting your improvement plans. Mm. And it should be said as well, this is being supported by some, some big names, some global ambassadors. Obviously, Terry, we've got uh, Steve Davis, Cliff Thorburn, Kelly Fisher, um, Ongyi, Marco. So clearly there's a there's a sort of global dimension to this as well. I mean, obviously, I know you're in Hong Kong, but a lot of people listening to this probably UK based. But this is something you want to roll out across the world. Uh, definitely. Uh, one of the goals, as I said, was more players playing more often in more clubs with more coaches. And that is, I mean, UK, we're a bit spoiled. Uh, a lot, mm. lot of good players, a lot of good clubs, good coaching, a lot of good players to play against each other. So the improvement is there. But in a number of other countries, Dave, I know you put this podcast out to a lot of countries where, mm. you know, they're younger in terms of snooker. Maybe they haven't got the structure, but they've definitely got the passion, the interest and the talent uh, to bring players into the game. So definitely SQ wants to bring more countries involved, bring more countries, getting players to the main tour. We're going to have something called the Path to Professional that we're going to roll out with national governing bodies, possibly. Um, and we're very lucky, as you mentioned, some of those names. Dad obviously uh, kicked this off and uh, back in the day and uh, is running with it now. But Steve Davis, yeah, Cliff Forb and Kelly Fisher, 
Marco on the page in Olin, uh, Mohammed Shihab about in the Middle East, all, all these good people, all I should add, freely giving their support uh, to what they feel is a system that could really be a game changer. Okay, well, there's m- much more information, of course, on the website, um, which is whatisyoursq.com. That's whatisyoursq.com. The connection is just about holding out, but I, I don't want to risk it too much more, Wayne, so I'm going to wrap up there. But uh, I wish you all the best with it. It's clear a lot of thought's gone into it. Um, and it's something that snooker's never really had this sort of system, like, as you say, in golf. So um, just, I guess, suppose finally, how, how do you see it sort of developing over the next few years? Hopefully, I suppose, from your point of view, players will embrace it. Well, we really hope so. It, it's an opportunity. You know, it's going to be a little bit of a slow burner. It is a big change, you know, a lot of a lot of information for people to take on. Um, but with the good people we are, we are working with, yeah, we really believe over the next year or two, as it builds momentum, uh, more players get involved, we have more data, more stories, it, it will start to market itself, you know, and, and, and be something that hopefully a snooker player, every snooker player is asking, you know, what is your SQ when they're asking another player? And following on from that, Kelly Fisher with a link is that we will um, move from snooker into other Q sports, eight ball and nine ball pool with a similar system in the future. So, yeah, the future is uh, definitely exciting, um, but it'll take a little bit of time for us to make sure that uh, everybody understands what we're trying to achieve. Brilliant. OK, well, I wish you all the best with it, Wayne, and, and thanks so much for being on the podcast. Really appreciate your time, Dave. Great podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks. Sports Social Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChumpaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.